working? Is that working? Yeah, very good. Okay. Well, this is handy. Table right there. <laughs> I was telling um, Jeremy and Alison last night that Amazing Grace is my favourite song. It is. When I first got saved, I just somehow just identified with it. It was so amazing. And then when I read the story about the writer, it was even more amazing. It was the same crying out to the Lord. Lord, help me. Um, I've called the message Healing on the Sabbath. And um, it's from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. But before we go there, we need to go to a few other passages. We need to see a structure of the ministry of Jesus. The scripture is full of different structures and parallels and it's quite amazing. I, th I actually believe it's endless. I don't think we can fully comprehend what is really in the scriptures. I tell my grandchildren that all the books that you'll ever read have a beginning and an end, but there's one book that never has an end. You can keep reading it and reading it and you'll discover more and more and more truth. It will never end. How amazing is that? Yeah. And I say to them, do you know which one it is? The Bible, Papa. <laughs> All right, so let's just start with a prayer. Father, I just thank you that we have the freedom to to look into your scriptures and to understand your word and see something of your ways. I pray, Father, that we will do this this morning and we will have real understanding and knowledge of your ways, that we might be transformed by knowing you, Lord Jesus. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. True relationship is what we need. So in this passage that we're going to come to, Jesus is challenging their interpretation of Scripture and their keeping of the Sabbath. Am I doing something wrong to make that noise? Or it's all right. Sorry? Oh, I won't be able to do that. I need my hands free. <laughs> Talk with these too. So what's happening is, is Jesus has come to his own first and he's beginning to challenge them now over, their, uh, over what I call religion. Okay, So the true Christian has relationship with Jesus but there are many out there who hold to maybe even reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures but they do not have relationship with Jesus. And so what happens is, is they go into a religion and this, of course, is what was happening in Israel at the time of Jesus. They understood the scriptures very well, but they did not know the author. They did not know the writer of the scriptures. They had no relationship. And so what they were doing was they were exercising all these traditions and religious rules and, and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus comes and he begins to challenge them with the truth. And so... What happens there is he's showing up what's going wrong with the, these people and he's giving them opportunity to turn to him. He's trying to show that he truly is the Messiah. He is the Saviour, but they reject him. And at this point, after, uh, at this time in his ministry, which is about the second year of his ministry, and it's the third trip from Galilee to, to Jerusalem, Okay, so every time you read the scripture and it says they went up to Jerusalem, don't think of like we do of north and south. That's not what it's talking about. Every, it doesn't matter where they are in Israel, everywhere is up to Jerusalem. Whether you're in the north or the south, everywhere is up to Jerusalem. Okay, so when you're reading the scripture, keep that in mind because you'll get confused. You go, hang on, he's in Galilee and he's going up to Jerusalem, but that's down, isn't it? Uh, only to us it's down, but not to them. It's up to Jerusalem. So this is his third trip. And what happens is, is he does something before he comes 
in Galilee, and it's the same thing. He heals on the Sabbath. So we have to go there first, and then we'll eventually get to this one in John. Okay? So, and we'll see how that what happens then is his ministry is changed after this time. There's a certain change that happens. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Let's start there. I hope we can get through this. Sometimes I go on a bit and we get laid, drawn away into other things. Okay, so from Matthew chapter 12, this is um, from verse 9 we're going to read, but this is after Jesus is um, walking along with the disciples on the Sabbath and they pick um, some uh, uh, wheat, you know, in the grain fields and they, they, they rub them together and they blow away the chaff and they eat, they're eating as they go, you see. And they're accused of breaking the Sabbath. But really they're not breaking the Sabbath and I'm going to show you why when we get to those scriptures a little bit later. But under their laws, under their traditions, they actually broke three rules. One was to do with harvesting. The other was doing with labour. And then the blowing was something as well. Some energy was, was put. So they broke three rules under the Talmud. So after that happens, he, he goes, we come to this part in verse 9. It says, now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. So the hand is always about your effort, you see, always about your ability, authority, power, this kind of thing. And it was withered. This guy had no abilities. We have to keep in mind that we can do nothing without Jesus. Amen? Nothing without Jesus. Okay, so this guy had a withered hand and they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? So they're trying to set Jesus up and accuse him of breaking the law. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him or kill him. That's, that's what that's about. They've now decided that they want to kill him. Okay, so first there is this, um, you know, they're asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, okay? Now it says in Mark chapter 3, you can read the same account there, verses 1 to 6, but it says that Jesus looked around at them in anger because of the hardness of their hearts. Now this is to do mainly with the leaders of Israel because they're making a decision here when, in how they deal with the Messiah. They knew that he was the Messiah and they rejected him. Okay, so Jesus heals the man and the Pharisees plot to kill him. All right, now from verse 15 it says, but, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. That's quite amazing. He withdrew because it wasn't time for his glorification, because they wanted to kill him now, you see. Well, no, he's in charge. Jesus is in control of everything, and he is not ready to be glorified. The glorification of Jesus will be on the cross, you see. That is Israel's only glory sadly, is that they brought forth the Messiah. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying. Now, this is uh, very interesting, this quote from Isaiah. It's, uh, it's something that um, 
that the people of the day miss completely. Um, but Jesus heals this man. They plot to kill him. He withdraws. Then what happens is he quotes from Isaiah. Now look at this quote. It says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. This is my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. This is the big change in Jesus' ministry. Okay, So from this point on, when he is challenging them about their traditions and their laws, they have rejected him, they begin to plot to kill him, his whole ministry changes. And now he includes the Gentiles, and part of that inclusion is to begin to speak in parables, so that those who are rejecting him will not understand what he's talking about. He's actually hiding the kingdom of God from hard hearts. Now, I personally believe that the reason he's doing that is to spare them torment in eternity. Because the more a person knows, the more torment or the greater is their punishment in eternity if they reject the Messiah. So he uses parables to do that. He says, He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. That is an amazing thing to the Jewish mind. They thought this God was their God and their God only. You see? And so here they could not, when you go through the rest of the New Testament, the New Testament scriptures is all the apostles' doctrine. It's written down for us. So in Acts chapter 2, uh, when it says, you know, that they went about adhering to the apostles' doctrine, what was that? Well, they wrote it down. It's the New Testament. That's what the apostles' doctrine is. And so in, through those letters, you'll see this struggle between Judaism and Christianity, you see? Because it was such a mind change to them that God would save the Gentiles, you see? And here it is prophesied some 720 years before Jesus came. And then you begin to see this played out in parables. So let's turn to uh, Matthew 22 and we'll just read one of those parables. <coughs> Matthew 22 and uh, this is the parable of the wedding feast. Okay. It says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. The servants are the prophets. Okay, So here, God is trying to bring all the people in to this wedding banquet, and they, they're not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, so more prophets, <laughs> saying... Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. All the prophets, the true prophets were killed, murdered by their own. There were thousands of prophets of Baal. Baal were treated well because they always had a good message. <laughs> always a message for the flesh. It'll all go well with you. It's fine. It doesn't matter about your sin problem. Everything's going to be great. No, that's not what the true prophet was saying. The true prophet was saying, repent. Judgment is coming, you see. And so they would kill those prophets. That's the servants. But when the king heard about it, he was furious 
and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Well, that's Jerusalem. That happened. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go out into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, this part of the parable is not possible, okay? But it's, it's to give, bring a truth out, okay? Because nobody is going to be at that wedding banquet who does not have the right robe, amen? <laughs> the sinner can't enter in. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That wedding garment is a robe of righteousness, and that righteousness is Jesus' righteousness. It's not our righteousness. And these Pharisees at this time, when Jesus is ministering to them, are holding on to their own righteousness, which is to fulfill the law themselves and all their hedging laws and their traditions to try and achieve that goal. That was their own righteousness. That is not the correct wedding garment. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does everybody wish me to go, go like that? <laughs> okay. All right. So, and then he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. So he calls everyone into the kingdom of God. Everyone come in. But who's chosen? Those with the righteousness of Christ. That's the only ones that are chosen to come in. Everyone else is left outside. Okay. So what happens here, back into Matthew when he's quoting from Isaiah, this is the point where Israel as a nation has rejected its Messiah. Okay. And from Matthew chapter 12, Jesus begins to include the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. And this is seen in the parables. And he makes Israel jealous. That's the whole point of this. Is he arranged it all to, sh to teach them their final lesson. What you have done to your God. When you See, they are like the, they're like the wife, the wayward wife. Hosea talks about that. Read the book of Hosea. That's what it's all about. It's about the wayward wife, which is Israel, and the church is the bride to come, you see. And so they have gone off with another, with other gods, and they've been caught up in idolatry, which stirred up the jealousy of the true God, you see, because he created them. He's the one that was paying the price for them. And he's the one that deserves every soul. Every act of worship belongs to God, the Most High, the Creator. Not to Satan, not to demons, not to man-made religion. None of those things matter. Those things are just pure wickedness. And at the very heart of them is self-exaltation, which is all about pride. If you were to go to Isaiah Chapter 14, you'll read about the pride of Satan. I will exalt myself above the throne of God. What is man doing? Always exalting himself. I am somebody important. I am somebody special. I've got this. I've got that. I've achieved this. These are all sinful things. You see, we are nothing in the sight of God. Nothing except for Christ in us. Amen. And so this is the same old story over and over again all through the scriptures. Man's sin of self-exaltation. Okay, let's have a look at Romans chapter 10. Just quickly go here. And he talks about this jealousy. Turn to Romans chapter 10.
from verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Who's that? The Gentiles, yes, exactly. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. What's foolishness? To worship idols, isn't it? Paganism is just simply foolishness. It's to disobey God. Now look at this. But Isaiah is very bold. And he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Isn't that wonderful? That's the Gentiles. That's us, folks. We weren't even looking for him. He found us. Eh? We're the ones that were lost. Jesus has never been lost. I didn't have to go find him. He knows where he is. You see? Isn't that wonderful? But he came and found me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see? And he's, this is what Paul is referring to. It's the same concept. This is what Jesus did when he came. He's stretching out his hands to his own. He went to his own first and they rejected him. Now they're plotting to kill him because he's breaking their traditions. So they are rejecting their Messiah. And from this point on, he then begins to reach out not only to the, to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. And we begin to see that in the parables. Chapter 13 of Matthew begins with the kingdom parables. An absolutely amazing set of parables that tells you this very fact that he is reaching out to everyone to come to the harvest and come into the kingdom of God. Isn't that wonderful? You see, this is quite amazing, you know, that we could be saved, that God would come to us and save us. I did nothing. Seriously, I did nothing. Absolutely nothing to get saved. He just came to me. To me. And to you. Do you see how miraculous that is? I did nothing. I was just running around in the world doing my own thing. When I got saved, I was on my way to do evil. I was going to rejoin with a particular group again and start up another one of those businesses that were wrong. And on the way, I met these Christians, started telling me about Jesus. Something was happening inside of me. I wasn't looking for him. He was looking for me. Isn't that wonderful? You see, and that's the fulfillment of these scriptures. For every soul that is saved, this is how it happens. It was absolutely amazing. Something was changing inside of me. And there was this hall where the Christians were having their meeting. And I was hitchhiking, you see. I was going to go down to uh, Nimbin and buy some drugs and get involved in that scene, you see. And this little voice said, go up to the hall where those Christians are having their meeting. And the little voice kept pestering, go up to the hall where the Christians are having their meeting. No, I don't want to go up there. I'm talking to myself, standing on the side of the road. Clear day, a couple of white clouds around. And I said, Lord, if it rains, I'll go up there. It started to rain. So I ran up to that hall and I was looking in. And I'd been hearing for two weeks because I just kept bumping into these Christians everywhere telling me about Jesus. And I'm standing in the doorway and I'm leaning on the door pillar. And I'm looking in. And they're all worshipping, you see. And I'm looking up the front and thinking, where's this Jesus guy? You see? Because they're telling me he was alive. And I'm looking for him. I couldn't see him. I thought, oh, I better go. I went to leave. I couldn't move. I couldn't move. I couldn't get off the door pillar. Seriously, I was stuck there. And I thought, oh, gee, and, every, and people are looking at me, you know. I thought, oh, I better go in. I couldn't go in either. I was held there. I couldn't go in. And then they started this little skit with 
puppets. And it was, it was the Good Samaritan, but they changed the characters. There was a biker and he's had an accident and he's laying on the side of the road, bleeding and dying. And the surfy comes along and he, I don't want him to do it for me, he's not going to help. And the businessman comes along, you see. And I'm identifying with Paul. This is, a, this is a loud message screaming at me, you see. And all these other people come along and they reject him. But then Jesus comes and he pours in the oil and the wine and heals him, you see. And then I could leave. When they finished that, all of a sudden I was just free. And then I left and I'm walking along and I'm, this just went over in my mind, you see. And it was only about a week later I got saved. This is another whole story, but. But isn't that amazing how he, he held me, he got my attention, he said, look, I'm here for you, I've come for you. Isn't that wonderful? You see? That's what salvation is. It's not about understanding the word only. It's not about knowledge, you see? Knowledge, all religion, every false religion, the very foundation of it is Gnosticism. I know. See, I have a secret knowledge or a better knowledge than you. This is pride. It's not about knowledge. It's about relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 11. We see the same concept again from verse 11. It says, I, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? This is talking about Israel. See, chapters 9, 10 and 11 is addressing, um, is, it's addressing the Gentiles and the... I can't even begin to describe Romans. It'll take too long. But these three chapters are addressing both groups and telling the Gentiles the attitude of mind that you should have towards Israel. Okay? But in this part, he's telling us why they stumbled, why God caused them to stumble so that he could bring the Gentiles in. Amen? So he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through therefore to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. See that? See, Paul understood this concept. Um, when Sab read out that passage from Corinthians, Paul's saying there, I receive from the Lord. That which I received from the Lord. Was he there? No. When did he receive it? <laughs> when he was out in the wilderness for three years with Jesus. Amen. He's a true apostle. Anyway, that's another story. Let's go on. Verse 12. Okay, he says, Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles... How much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So what he's saying is I, I make my ministry greater. I want to reach as many Gentiles as possible so that I could stir my own brothers, my own countrymen up to jealousy, that they too might get saved and come in. You see, that's what he's saying. For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Eh? See, see again in, in, in Ephesians, Paul says that the Jew and the Gentile both have to come through Jesus into the church. There's only three nations. The Jewish nation, the Gentile nation, and the church. Both have to repent of everything that is an offence to God and come to Jesus, into the church. Amen? So there's no one's better than the other. They both come to Christ. I love it. So don't get caught up in the circumcision group and don't get caught up in paganism and mysticism. We see both of those in the churches today. So Israel made God jealous. We can read about that in 1 Kings. We'll go there. Yep, let's go there. Chapter 14, 1 Kings. Chapter 14. Let's have a look at this. 
came. And from verse 22, it says, Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy. So they provoked the Lord to jealousy by doing their evil. This is the southern kingdom, okay? With their sins which they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves, this is what they did, look, what they did, for they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. That was all idolatry. That was all the worship of Baals, okay, false gods with idols and all these sacred things that they made up themselves. They were not worshipping the true God. But they went worse than that. Look at this. And we're not going to search this right out. I'll just make mention of it. It says, And there were also perverted persons in the land. Now look why they were perverted. It tells us why. It says, They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. You see? What were those abominations? They were more than just idolatry. I won't go there, but you can go there and read it in Leviticus chapter 18. It's all about sexual sins, immorality, wrong relationships. Okay? And so in Leviticus it tells us what it is. That's what it was. So here these people have strayed so far from their God they're worshipping idols and they're perverting themselves with these all kinds of immoralities. Today, they are trying to bring this kind of immorality into the schools and educate children with it. I saw some docos on what's happening in California and they have a thing called sex health studies for all children and basically it's every perverted thing you could imagine is portrayed as normal. That's what they're trying to do. And they're trying to do it here as well because they want to corrupt the people and cause them to go on suicide and, and murder and all kinds of things. Because when you start messing up the soul that much, that's what happens. Self-destruction. You see? And that's the plot of the devil. He comes to steal, kill and destroy. And that's exactly what he's doing. He hasn't changed his ways he never will. Okay, so let's move on. <laughs> All right, let's have a look at the, what the Sabbath means because remember we're talking about the Sabbath. So first, in Galilee, he heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Now, all of Jesus' journeys are basically from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem. Back again, back again, back again, back again. That's what he did. This is about the third time, okay? So he's now going to come back down into Jerusalem when we get to John chapter 5, okay? <laughs> and, of course, he stops in a lot of places along the way and preaches and so many amazing things happen, so much so that it could not all be written down in books for the earth wouldn't contain them. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20 and we'll see there the law about the Sabbath. Quickly read that, and then we'll try and work out what it's actually saying. Exodus chapter 20, and uh, from verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, or made it a holy day. Okay. <clears throat> so here we see that it's a rest from all your works. 
okay? <coughs> and, uh, well, let's just go to Jeremiah first. Let's have a look here. We, we just need to get a bit, bit more clear on what this is about. So let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. And from verse 19. It says, Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day. So there's a bit of a thing there, bear no burden, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear but made their necks stiff and that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hollow the Sabbath day to do no work in it. <clears throat> then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots, and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. That's a pretty good promise. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings, and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hollow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So again, a promise and a judgment. <coughs> So now let's go to Nehemiah. So here it's about not carrying a burden on the Sabbath day through the gates of the city. <coughs> now we get a bit more clarity from this, about this in Nehemiah. Let's turn there. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. And we'll see what this is. Verse 31. Just pick out a couple of verses. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day. See there, sell. Okay. In, in another place it calls this kind of work customary work. We would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day and we would forego the seventh, the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Okay, So this is about keeping the Sabbath but now we're getting down to what it actually means what the scripture says it is. And then also um, from verse 15, uh, oh, sorry, Chap uh, chapter 13 of Nehemiah and verse 15. Now let's turn then, watch this. <coughs> from verse 15, it says, In those days I saw people in Jerusalem, in, sorry, in Judah, treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they bought 
into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. See, this is about making money. This is about doing trade. It's about selling and buying and doing business. This is the work that he's talking about. It's not about feeding yourself on a Sabbath day or, or getting warm or, or pulling a sheep out of a ditch because it falls in. These are just normal things. But this is actually doing business on the Sabbath day. So the, and the carrying the burden was to carry the goods and wares into the city through the gates on the Sabbath. This was an offence to God because now you're occupied with your own works, your own provision, providing for yourself instead of being occupied with the worship of, the, of your God. You understand what I'm saying here? So this is, this is called customary work in other places. And so that's what was forbidden on the Sabbath, not walking through the grain field, picking some grain and, and eating it. That was not breaking the Sabbath. That was breaking the traditions of men. <coughs> men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do this and did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So this is after the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem and he's saying, he's referring back, did not God punish us by destroying the city, burning it because we did not keep the Sabbath? We broke all these his laws and now you're provoking him again, you see? And then um, uh, he says this, he says, now this is, this is a bit interesting, this, these next few verses. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. So this is Nehemiah. He's, he's making the, the law happen. He's making the rule happen. He's closing the gates, and you're not going to come in and do trade on the Sabbath. Amen? Now the merchants and, and uh, sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them, listen to the warning. <laughs> I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. <coughs> and this is not a friendly laying hands on, okay? <laughs> What he's, what he's saying, I'm going to come down there and give you a flogging. That's what he's saying. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the, the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Then he says this prayer. <clears throat> I think he says it three times throughout the book. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So they're breaking all kinds of laws. And half of their children spoke languages of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them off, struck some of them off and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. So here Nehemiah is enforcing the Sabbath laws and other laws. But what, what his prayer is, is it's kind of a, a, because he's using physical violence against his own people. He's slapping them around, pulling them out there. What are you doing? 
He's trying to protect the city. He's trying to protect the people. That's what he's doing. And then he prays, oh, Lord, please forgive me. Remember this no more in your mercy. (laughs) He does that three times through the book. It's pretty awesome. I can relate to that. (laughs) I got a... (laughs) No, I won't go there. (laughs) I got some rallies that, that... Really, they really are a challenge. (laughs) Okay, so this is about trade, you see. It's about, you know, uh, carrying burdens, um, people and beasts, in order to buy and sell, to trade, to make money, working for gain. You see, that's what he's talking about. (coughs) Now, so these guys were, you know bringing about all these extra rules and regulations and placing burdens upon the people, weighing them down with religion. But Jesus came to set them free. Let's have a look at Matthew 23. Let's turn there. There's another verse in um, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14 talks about doing things God's way. But we won't go there. We'll just, we'll just go here and um, have a look at this. <coughs> Matthew 23. Uh, verse 4, it says, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. This is talking about the Pharisees, placing heavy burdens upon the people, but they themselves won't, won't move them with a little finger even. They won't help them. You see? And then in verse, there's a lot in there of course, but I'm just picking out these couple of bits here. In verse 13 it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You see that? Jesus was very angry at these guys because there are people out there who really want the truth. They want to know their God. And they're binding them up with all kinds of useless regulations and laws and customs and traditions of men. And they think that they have to manage all of these things when really they just need to go to Jesus and let him deal with your heart. See, he's the perfect counsellor. He knows when to deal with that sin problem in your life. He knows when to, to, to... change you in a particular way. He's the perfect counsellor. Man can't do that. I can't lay down a bunch of rules and regulations for you to keep and somehow that's going to give you a relationship with God. That's just stupidity. That can't happen. You see? Because you are unique and you're valuable to God. Amen? And he, everything in this life is about preparing you for eternity with him. That's what it's about. Everything here. <coughs> so this is what they did, you see. They, they had the, the, the religious always place heavy burdens upon men. They had what was called oral tradition or the oral Torah and the Mishnah, which was the first time it was kind of written down. And that was all these rules. And then it became... The Talmuds, there was two of them, a a Jerusalem one and a Babylonian one. And these things had hundreds of laws made up by men. What a burden that was placed upon these people. Absolutely amazing stuff. But you know what? The church today is no different. We have churches making up all kinds of laws and regulations and 12 steps to this and 6 steps to that. You just go into a Christian bookshop and you see all the garbage in there, you know. 
They still have some Bibles in there. They do. <laughs> Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. I saw it with my own eyes. <laughs> Matthew chapter 11. Let's go here. Look at this. This is what Jesus says about it all. <clears throat> chapter 11 from verse 25. Beautiful passage of scripture. Look at this. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. You see that? So Jesus reveals himself. And in revealing himself, he's revealing the Father. Amen? Then look what he says. Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does that sound beautiful or what? All you who labour. What, what's he, he's not talking about manual work. He's talking about labouring under religious restrictions. That's what he's talking about. He's talking to Israel. They've got this heavy burden. He says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, from Jesus. You can go directly to him in prayer, in reading the scripture. You see, this is just a small part of your Christian experience. The day at church, the first day of the week, and hearing a message and, and worship and all of the things that we do here. This is a small part. You're meant to do this every day of your life. Dig into the scriptures, pray and ask of the Lord and he will reveal himself to you. <clears throat> so he says, come to me all you who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that sound beautiful or what? That's what Jesus says to us. I am gentle. I'm not harsh. You see? That's what he says. Come to me and learn of me. Learn from me. I will give you rest for your souls. You see? No, no worrying about your eternity anymore. Just work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fearing God, amen? That's what he's saying. So what is it to be yoked? You see, he came to set us free from religious burdens and works. Those works we're told in, by Paul in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, we have to repent of them. He calls them dead works. He says repentance is a... It's an elementary truth. It's to repent of dead works and have faith towards God. You see? Paul quotes it three times in the New Testament from Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. He quotes it in Romans, uh, Galatians and Hebrews. Amen? You see, that's the rest that we enter into. Read the first four chapters, especially three and four of Hebrews, and it tells you that you enter into a different rest you see, every day is a rest for us, every day, because we're resting from our works for salvation. It's been given to us as a free gift from Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? It's all his doing, you see. I can't earn anything with Christ, nothing, absolutely nothing. I can do nothing without him. Isn't that good? That means I'm not responsible. <laughs> I'm only responsible for my obedience to him. I love it. 
That's the way to be, you see. Our works are self-righteousness. You see, he says, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. What is this you? Yoke, it binds two oxen together, you see. And what they would do is they would put an old ox and a young ox together because the young ox, he sees the grass over there and he says, oh, I'll go and have a feed. He's not ploughing anymore. He sees something, he's all over the place. The old ox, he knows the commands of the master with the reins who owns the yoke and, and the, the harness and the reins and that's Jesus and he's steering, you see. No, no, go this way. Keep a straight path this way, you see. But as a new believer, you want to rush off here and rush off there and, oh, there's some food over here. No, no, that's not food. That's poison in the pot. Here it is here in the scriptures. The food I give you and my servants give you, the right food in season. You see? You see what he's saying here? You see? And what is that yoke? Who's the other ox? The Holy Spirit. He comes alongside. He's one the same. He joins to you, to your side. That's what it literally means in John when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He joins with you and he guides you and he leads you in the paths of righteousness. Amen? That's what this is about. He's saying, come unto me and be yoked with my spirit and I will give you rest. <coughs> Sorry. Okay, now let's come to our passage. Have we got long? How, much, how long have we got? It's 10 to 12. Only a few minutes. All right. Let's come to John chapter 5. Let's have a read of this. Remember the first time was in Galilee. He heals on the Sabbath. The withered hand. Okay. Now he heals the paralytic. Chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're at verse 1. Okay. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There it is. See, everywhere's up to Jerusalem. He's coming from Galilee, and he's going up to Jerusalem. He's headed south. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called, in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. That's a long time. It could have been his whole life. We don't know. We're not really told. He could have been a 38-year-old man. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been there in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no, one, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Oh, we've broken the Sabbath again. We're carrying a burden, you see. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. So sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. 
because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. You see? So from this point on, they begin to plot to kill Jesus. So here we have this, um, this place called uh, Bethesda. It's a twin pools by the Sheep Gate, which is the market, near the market, north of the temple. Okay? <coughs> and water, of course, is the word of God. So this place was used for ceremonial washing. Okay? So it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Bethesda, having five porches. So it's a pool of water and it was for ceremonial washing. They would go there as well for that. And water, of course, speaks of the word of God. And five is the number of grace. So these people are around under these shelters, which represents an idea of grace. Five porches, okay? And then what happens is, the name of the place, Bethesda. Now, this is, gets a bit interesting because it had a couple of different names in different languages. So, in Hebrew, Bethesda is house of mercy. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? That's what our Lord's all about. Also, in Aramaic, it's the place of outpouring. Right? That's pretty neat. And then in Hebrew, it's also called Biet Zata. I think that's how you pronounce it, which is the house of olives. Also called Biet Hased, which is a house of loving kindness. I like that. <coughs> I think it's in Jeremiah, he talks about God's loving kindness, and it's, it can be translated his righteousness. So loving kindness and righteousness are kind of one of the one and the same thing. They're the same idea. And that's what this place was. And the multitude of sick were there in verses 3 to 4. It tells us that. And it says in verse 3, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralysed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, paralysed here, it can also be translated withered. So it's, it's thought that this man's feet were somehow withered. They, they, from not being able to be used, they, they became nothing, like withered up. No strength in them, no ability to walk. This is very similar to the withered hand, which is your ability to do things, and this is about the walk before God. You see, without him, you can't walk. You can't do it by keeping laws and rules and regulations you need jesus to walk you need to be able to go in the way the early church was called the church of the way okay so he was there for 38 years um the question is really odd do you want to be made well imagine do you want to be saved yeah that's what he's saying do you want to be saved some people don't want to be saved strange isn't it they don't want to be saved. How is that? It's because they think they're losing something valuable here. But everything here is worthless. It's, it's not worth anything. That's no different to asking that same question. Do you want to be saved? And then he tells how the waters are stirred and all this kind of thing. And We don't really know what this is about here. There could be some Jewish mythology here as well, you see. But this is what happened, you see. Now, in verses 9 and 8, the words here, when he says, rise up, take, take up your bed and walk, there's the idea of continually walking. He's saying, don't, don't stop. It's, and it's talking about walking in a way, you see. So we as Christians have to be continually in the way, walking as Jesus walked. That's what we're, we're commanded to do. We are to be a living sacrifice for Jesus. And then they were um, you know, upset and angry because Jesus was breaking their traditions. We see that verses 10 to 13. 
misunderstanding you. But he says to repent and go and sin no more. And from this point, the Jews sought to kill him. Because, and at this time, this is when Jesus begins to include the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Isn't that wonderful? Because it's kind of a final thing. Now, he's been to the northern kingdom in Galilee. They've plotted to kill him there. Now he's come down to the southern kingdom. They've plotted to kill him there. And that's pretty much as a nation they're saying we reject the Messiah. So he now includes the Gentiles. Let's finish with this one verse in Psalm 41. Let's turn there. Turn to Psalm 41. This is our true state and a a great prayer. Look at this. Psalm 41 and verse 4. This is King David um, writing this one. He says, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Isn't that wonderful? What a great prayer. Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.